Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode of the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast, I feature Ashley James, the Associate Curator of Contemporary Art at the Guggenheim Museum in New York City. She is the curator of Off the Record 2021 and co-curator of the Hugo Boss Prize, Deanna Lawson, Centropy 2021. Prior to joining the Guggenheim, Ashley served as Assistant Curator of Contemporary Art at the Brooklyn Museum where she was a curator for the museum's presentation of Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power in 2018. In 2019, Ashley organized Eric N. Mack, Let Me Walk Across the Room, and in 2020, she co-curated John Edmonds' A Sidelong Glance. Ashley served as a Mellon Curatorial Fellow in Drawing and Prints at the MoMA, where her work focused on the groundbreaking retrospective of Adrian Piper and Charles White. She also held positions at the Studio Museum in Harlem. At the Yale University Art Gallery, she co-organized the exhibition Odd Volumes Book Art from the Alan Shasanoff Collection in 2015. She holds a BA from Columbia University and a PhD from Yale University in English Literature and African American Studies with a certificate in Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies. It gives me pleasure to feature the very impressive Ashley James. Ashley, it's so nice to have you join me on my Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. My pleasure, my pleasure. So let's dive in. And um, when you were much younger, <laughs> when in your life did you recognize your love uh, for the visual arts? Yeah, when I was much younger. Um, like like, I, fi- like five, five years old. <laughs> you know, I can't remember. I don't have many memories that young, I have to say. Um, well, at least not around visual art. Uh, but... I, my kind of childhood um, coming to visual art, probably through the aesthetics of the home space. I think that that is a kind of beginning place for a lot of young people, um, young, young Black people. My dad, my parents really uh, would take us to museums when uh, family were was visiting from out of town. So I grew up in Orange County, California. And so kind of like the trip to the Getty and that would be my kind of usual museum interaction, though my love of aesthetics in general kind of precedes that. I will say though that my seeing myself in the visual arts, I guess, which is a bit 
separate from um, a love of visual arts, but seeing myself in the visual arts really came later in life. Um, I have a um, literature background and I always loved reading. I loved poetry specifically. And that is what I studied as an undergrad and in grad school. Um, and it wasn't until graduate school that I came back around to visual art as um, a field that I could see myself in. Even as I knew of it, I would go to museums. It wasn't until, until graduate school that I actually thought about it as something that I could pursue as a as a career. And do you recall what where that inspiration came from? What what turned on that light bulb? Yeah, definitely. It's I think it was a mix of classes I was taking, um, a specific institution, um, the Yale University Art Gallery, um, a place where I visited a lot, uh, learned from. We would have class there sometimes. Um, I took a course with uh, Hazel Carby called, um, I want to say, Visualizing Black Women Interdisciplinary Course, mm -hmm. where, you know, we studied straight from the Ellen Gallagher in, in the gallery. And then I also had an opportunity to uh, curate an exhibition at the Yale University Art Gallery as a graduate student. So kind of all of those things were happening at once. It felt like my academic life, when it would have its fruition in the public space, was always kind of around art. And I quickly learned that visual art, at least for me, engaging in the writing and presentation of visual art was a way of reaching people and a greater kind of greater scale audience than I had ever experienced before as somebody who would write about writing. And yeah, I think I had a, a real kind of aha moment was I really loved, I remember I really loved giving tours of that exhibition is called Odd Volumes Book Art from the Alan Chasanoff collection at the Yale Art Gallery. And I was just really happy in that space, um, communicating with people in like face-to-face -face and through the language of art. And I think that that was an aha moment that this could actually be a career path for me. And were was there a particular artist or body of work that influenced you? Yes. Um, I was writing at the time on uh, Adrian Piper, um, which eventually developed into a chapter of my dissertation. And I, which work had I just seen? I don't know if I'd even just seen it, but I was writing about Food for the Spirit, a work from 1971, photographic uh, series of Pipers, where she essentially um, photographed herself during um, summer months in 1971, where she engaged in kind of like a um, fasting meditation, basically attempting to think about the limits of, of her body. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a series of 14 works. And I was just thinking about that work a lot, maybe for longer than I needed to, um, as someone trying to complete a dissertation. And um, yeah, I was writing, I remember I was writing on that, um, kind of very deep into the world of Aging Piper, um, also really interested in the Mythic Being series. And that kind of obsession, I would definitely call it, um, 
it did find its fruition because um, I uh, later received a fellowship at MoMA um, as part of their Mellon Research Consortium. Um, which brings together PhD students kind of from the metropolitan area plus. Um, And I had a chance to write about Food for the Spirit for that, and then eventually led to a fellowship where I worked on the Asian Piper retrospective. So that was like literally Asian Piper, Food for the Spirit was my bridge to my first institutional job. So let's talk about your various roles. So you're currently the first full-time Black curator at, uh, excuse me, Black curator, but associate curator in contemporary arts. Uh, but you've also had a role at the Brooklyn Museum, and as you mentioned, uh, MoMA. What what do you love most about what you do and about those different roles? Yeah, I think what I love most about curatorial work, and it's the same thing that keeps me going, <laughs> um, is... I see every, I really like um, ideas. That's what I'm passionate about. Um, It it sounds really basic, but yeah, I'm an easily bored person. And so just kind of new ideas is what keeps me alive and has me feeling good about my existence. I see artworks as their own theorizations with, and that exists on a very wide spectrum in terms of what how I'm conceiving of theorization, whether it's a theorization of color, it's a theorization of politics, it's a theorization of familial structures, whatever that may be. I actually liken my interest in art objects to my interest in poetry. I don't think it's a coincidence that it was within literature, specifically poetry, that I was and am interested in because there's something about a kind of like discrete object that carries its own content, form, and logic that really just interests me. And I find that in art history. So with curatorial work, it's, I like figuring out what that idea is. I like figuring out the ways to link the idea that is one artwork to another. I like seeing that kind of greater picture. I get really excited about seeing works in, seeing one single work that of course has its own language, its own meanings, its own aesthetics. And then what becomes, what new comes out of seeing it in relationship to the second, the third, the fourth. So on an intellectual level, it's just, a kind of infinitely fulfilling project process. There, literally, there aren't. There, it, it, it's not. It's kind of. It's not a discrete discipline, job process. You, there are infinite capacities for the ways that you can organize objects in space, in books. Um, so this idea that it's kind of inexhaustible, I think, is. Um, one of the things that I, I like about curatorial work, and I also really like being engaged in a field that really has an audience at its at its core. Um, 
of course, that looks very different. What that audience is, the Brooklyn Museum audience is different than Guggenheim, from MoMA, from you know, Art Gallery, but there is still this kind of coherent thread around, you know, not just making something to make it, but wanting people to see it and engage in some way. And I think I'm propelled at the same time as my kind of like introvert mind is <laughs> kept going by the work of like thinking through a topic, an artist practice, what have you. There's the part of me that is really invested in social spaces and education and generational knowledge and community that um, is satisfied by the core principle of museums, which is to engage with the public. So those kinds of um, dual concerns are really satisfied by curatorial work in a way that I did not find to be the case in like academia, for instance, even though there's obviously a lot of variety. Share with us your experience curating Solvanation at the Brooklyn Museum. Yeah, um, Solvanation was such a an amazing project to be a part of. Um, it was uh, curated by Zoe Whitley and Mark Godfrey at the Tate in London, which is where it originated before coming to Crystal Bridges um, in Arkansas and then to us at Brooklyn. And it was definitely a crash course <laughs> into everything. It was a really big show over 10,000 square feet. I think it was like 160 plus objects. And yeah, and I worked on it by myself. <laughs> so it was it was it was it was kind of like a, a perfect project for me. I, I have found myself in these spaces where, um, you know, whether it's Agent Piper in this case, Solvidation, where this the, the interests, the research interests align. Um, I had been working on 1960s, 1970s through Piper and others, um, James Baldwin and Mary Baraka in my dissertation work. And then, you know, this exhibition on 60s and 70s Black visual artists was coming to the Brooklyn Museum. I was assigned to it. And, and yeah, I had the freedom to kind of reshape it for the purposes of Brooklyn. And it was, in that sense, a really kind of great opportunity because on the one hand, there was a shape in place already. So it wasn't like I had to start from scratch with it. Um, but I was supported by the Brooklyn Museum, by Eugenie Sai, um, to put my spin on it and really given the complete leeway. So I, I, I made every decision, you know, no one was really pushing back or um, requiring me to do anything specifically. I was able to add works. I was able to rewrite the text. I was able to um, reorganize the groupings um, to the way that felt consistent with my vision of what that show um, should look like in at the Brooklyn Museum in New York. So yeah, it was, it was a really great opportunity project in a practical sense. It taught me a lot about exhibition making just because I also, you know, you kind of took a 360 approach to putting it together as opposed to um, being a fellow at, at MoMA. And yeah, and in terms of that other piece I was mentioning about 
audience engagement. I know that that was such a kind of beloved show in terms of visitorship. And that is always really exciting to see. And of course, the artists too. I mean, so many of those artists are older. I mean, all of them are older. Um, and being able to see them see their work in that context and feel good about how it's presented that's always kind of the best outcome that one can hope for with shows. Sounds like a very rewarding experience. Yes, absolutely. And how do you feel about being the first Black curator at the Guggenheim? I have a lot of feelings around firstness and how that gets contextualized. On the one hand, I think in a practical sense, there's a feeling of both responsibility right. <laughs> um, around, okay, so now that you're here and the access is there, who do you bring along with you? Who do you bring into the space? How do you ensure that you're using the opportunities that are given to you in the ways that are, um, yeah, reflective of the community you came from and all the possibilities of art histories to be written? Um, that's also like a great, it's responsibility, but it's also excitement and um, possibility. As much as it's a firstness in terms of my my capacity as a curator, I think the way that I see it is kind of equally about the first opportunities that can come from bringing in the kinds of artists that haven't had a platform yet at the museum. And so on the one hand, it's about looking forward and recognizing and taking advantage of all that comes from having these first opportunities. On the other hand, I'm always kind of reticent around the kind of like the discourse of firstness as it relates to achievement, I have to say. Um, and what I mean by that is as happy as I am to have this this role and as confident as I am in my deservedness and my capabilities in the role. At the same time, I recognize that I'm very much a product of generations of uh, Black women curators who've kind of laid the groundwork for the field, as it were, and alongside um, my own peers who are also <laughs> in the trenches doing the work. And I always kind of keep in mind that firstness is very much a reflection of the institution because I'm not so convinced or blinded <laughs> by my own trajectory that I, I would think that there couldn't have been a person before me. Do you know what I mean? Um, there should have been. <laughs> there is, right. There's many, there are many capable um, curators that would have been the first. So I guess that's why I, when I get that question, I kind of reroute it from this feeling around like a singular achievement as opposed to seeing it in a kind of forward thinking way in terms of these singular opportunities that come from this position. And the responsibility that comes with being a first. Yes. Yes. And I mean, honestly, the first thing, the first, the first thing that I think of in complicating firstness and to your point around responsibility is that it shouldn't be the first anymore. Right. <laughs> so, you know, as I, 
I'm getting started on a, a longer term project. And one of the first things on my mind is like, okay, so how do I, you know, begin to think about securing the funding. So I get a research assistant at least <laughs> who's coming in here as well. You know, it's like part of the success in firstness is, is kind of obliterating counting. And how do you feel COVID, Black Lives Matter, how do you feel that has influenced and will continue to impact institutions? I think Black Lives Matter placed a lot of pressure and it offered, I think, an opening. I felt like in a way that at least I haven't seen um, in my you know brief curatorial career um, relatively, it pressured institutions to really react. Those reactions vary, of course, but there was a need to react. And I think for employees of museums, it became a, um, and I'm just thinking of last year, particularly, obviously Black Lives Matter is not um, past tense, but a kind of springboard for articulating grievances and a desire for change. I think the trick now <laughs> is ensuring that those changes are A, being like follow through, um, but B, honestly, ensuring that it's people of color and in particular Black people who are the beneficiaries of these pushes. It's interesting that you say Black Lives Matter and COVID because those are inexplicable, but at the same time, there are some questions around like job security, compensation, all of these things that kind of became more exacerbated and acute with COVID following the you know, shutdowns and um, increased safety measures and all of these things. But I do think that Black Lives Matter and the demands therein should be seen in some ways separate from that. And I do hope that going forward, Black Lives Matter and the questions of racial equity really don't lose <laughs> their impact as these things begin to continue to unfold. I agree. I feel the reason why I, I couple uh, COVID and, and Black Lives Matter is with COVID, people seem to be appreciating some of the more simple things in life and, mm -hmm. you know, and sort of stepping back and rethinking how they view the world or how they view people. Both are sort of a, a wake up call in a sense. Mm -hmm. The impression I get is that most of us are, will be better people <laughs> at the end. Regarding soul of a nation, how did you consider the distinction between abstraction and figurative work? Yeah, the abstraction and figuration was really key to that show and is a dichotomy that I would say is maybe the most critical for better or for worse um, within the discourse of Black art history, particularly during the 1960s and 70s. But I would say that that extends to the present and I'm sure precedes it precedes the 60s too. On the one hand, I, I don't believe in the distinction. I say this all the time. And I think it's Mel Edwards actually says this all the time when he's interviewed, like, you know, every artwork is abstract <laughs> um, when it comes down to it. Because, you know, there's, when you make a work of art, 
it's not a kind of mimetic creation of a person. It's a representation of a person. It's, it's abstracted in some way. But even beyond that kind of like higher philosophical understanding of that, I do feel like sometimes the distinction can set up more barriers for understanding than clarity. Because I actually see a lot of shared questions that, that come from abstraction and figuration. Um, and one of the things I was really interested in with um, the Brooklyn presentation of Solvination was in very small ways, kind of trying to complicate that distinction a bit. Um, there was a work that I brought into the show by Suzanne Jackson, and I paired it, I, I placed it in proximity to um, a Sam Gilliam work. And um, it was a very slight kind of intervention. The Suzanne Jackson work was a acrylic wash, kind of figurative image of three women. And you can see the features of the woman, but it kind of would bleed out into what would kind of look like a more abstracted plane. And it was a reminder to me that even the figurative artist is thinking about the kind of the basic language of color form shape that we associate with abstraction. That being said, I came to art, as I mentioned, uh, in a kind of more formal way with Adrian Piper. And I really was interested in conceptual art <laughs> and like things that were typewritten <laughs> and things that didn't exist. And um, so abstraction for me was actually a abstract painting was something that I was not as interested in, I have to say, um, from a kind of like specialty level. And working on Solvination, I and, and just spending a lot more time thinking through abstract artists, Sam Gilliam, Alma Thomas, B.T. Williams, um, Frank Bowling, and Ed Clark. It really refreshed my understanding about the, the concept of abstract art. And so, yes, abstraction doesn't have a narrative in the same way that um, figurative work. You can kind of follow that story. Abstraction, though, does have concept as key to it. And I think that that was kind of my end. So whether the concept was about the relationship between colors, whether the concept was the dynamism of a composition, um, whether the concept lied in perception and how close you stand next to a painting um, and what you can see from different angles, whether the concept was about the breakdown of um, a form, the, I'm thinking of the kind of the drapery of Sam Gilliam's practice and this idea of rebelling against the strictures of um, the kind of the rectangular on the wall idea of what a painting was, whether the concept is in the process of making and how you apply paint. So I guess abstraction for me, when I see it, not so much, not leaving it in terms of like um, the absence of narration, but the presence of these different kinds of conceptual gestures. That is what really kind of jump-started my kind of new relationship to abstraction. So, so what do you feel is the purpose of art? Purpose of art? Um, hmm. I think it'd be difficult for me to name one. <laughs> I 
But I don't know. I mean, I can't see a world without it. So I guess I would say it is the realization of the self. I believe that art can do all the things that a museum website says, inspire, (laughs) educate, uplift, reroute thinking around ideas. So many different ways that art objects do. But I do think that in a kind of basic sense, art is the realization of the self. I just don't, in the kind of negative articulation of it, I can't see an existence that lacks it. And it saves us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what do you feel your role is? As a curator? As a curator, as, uh, as a human, given the opportunity you have to impact people Mm -hmm. through art, how impactful would you like to be or what's your goal? Yeah, I think that's, that's a good question. I see my responsibility, my role, my goal as a connector. I think, yeah, I will say that, you know, one of the things that I realized across multiple institutions as I've move from place to place, each institution you go to kind of clear, you get gain more clarity around your own practice as a curator. And there are a lot of things that curators share. Um, but I do think that curators have their own, their own knack, their own interests, their own specialties. And for me, I really like the connecting part of curatorial. So whether that is connecting, making connections in a group show and thinking about like, okay, these are works that are being produced across disparate demographics, different geographical ranges, et cetera, different topics, but like what can connect these things? And once you find that connection, like what can we gain from that connection being made? I think that that is kind of a basic aspect of curatorial work, but I I do think that is something that I am good at and I'm kind of resolved around continuing to pursue that as something that I can give to the public. And connecting, you mentioned public programs earlier on in this discussion and making connections out from the art world into back to my, my other love of poetry, into my fellow academic, into just different areas um, outside of the discipline of art history in particular, I think is something that I, that I really believe in and um, find to be my role. I also have an education background. I taught post undergrad. Um, It was a very formative experience for me and it impressed upon me the importance of generational knowledge. And I do believe that it is my um, charge to pass on information to think about even younger (laughs) curators or people just, you know, working through the arts or any related fields. So kind of like setting that up in my mind has been something that is important to me. And it's, it's a reason why I'm here because I've had mentors. um, So I can't see a cycle that exists without that. So yeah, connection. I think I would say is it's my overall purpose. It's uh, wonderful. It must be a great experience to to connect. 
This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time, Ashley. Thank you, Phyllis. I really appreciate you inviting me and having me. And thank you for these questions. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.